Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is author and poet, Rebecca Roter. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Rebecca Rota received her MA from Hollings College in Virginia, where she was the recipient of the Academy of American Poets Prize. Her work has appeared in Santa Clara Review, America Magazine, and the New York Times, among others. The essay, Proteus on the Vassa, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her novel, Last Night at the Blue Angel, received the Friends of American Writers Award, the Nebraska Book Award, and was shortlisted for the Dublin International Literary Award. A collection of poems, All the Animals We Ever Were, was published in November of 2017. Understory, an epic poem, was published in 2020. Rota lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and teaches in the Writer's Workshop at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you for having me. I enjoy the serendipity in a way of finding a book that I didn't know I was going to find. And so um, getting Last Night at the Blue Angel, which is your debut full-length novel, I found myself really thoroughly enjoying it and getting to a point where it actually was a page-turner. I did want to talk a little bit about the themes in, in that with you. I enjoyed the structure of the book, which um, moved between a sort of 20-ish year period from the mid-40s to the mid-60s. and. Right. The 60s was set in Chicago and anchored around Naomi, the mother, with her 10-year-old daughter, Sophia. But Naomi is pursuing this singing career. And then we go back to uh, the 40s when Naomi at that point was sort of just coming into her womanhood, moving from sort of late teen years into these early 20s and really discovering herself. I wondered about one aspect of a, a theme perhaps being around a critique in some ways of, of motherhood and expectations of motherhood, juxtaposing those with the desire of an individual to pursue success and ambition in some way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wondered to what extent you felt that this was a, you know, an, a theme, an avenue for you to explore some of those, those issues. Certainly, as a daughter in contemporary life, I don't think it's changed so much. From I was raised in the 70s, 80s. Um, Sophia's raised in the 50s and 60s, but I don't think that sort of the state of being female and the state of being a mother has changed all that much. It was very fraught, and it's still very fraught. We have certain, ex- there are certain expectations on females of how they're supposed to be and behave and appear, um, what's proper. Um, and those those remain very powerful forces on a female life, and it distorts us. We are these big beings that have to start bending and pushing and shoving and cornering ourselves in order to be okay in the world, in order to be safe, in order to have any sort of security, in order to belong anywhere. We have to do so much distorting. What happens when we have a girl child? 
We want them to be free. We want them to be their big selves. We also want them to survive and to belong somewhere. So we start distorting them. Our love is distorted and our love starts getting built around loving them as they are, but also telling them you're not okay as you are and you will not be accepted as you are. And it just becomes a very um, difficult, I certainly experienced that. I don't know what female who has a mother hasn't really experienced that to some degree of a mother who is very um, deeply fraught about her own place in the world and her own nature and the degree to which she has to feel she has to pass that on to her daughters is a, is a, it's a very complicated theme. And in terms of, you know, relating it to sort of Naomi's ambitions, I wanted to give Naomi ambition because it's another thing that we don't want women to have. It's not a female imperative. We believe it should not be a female imperative. It's ambition. And, and her ambition is big. I also wanted to explore it because I've never felt like a particularly ambitious person. <laughs> I said in an interview once that I am about as ambitious as a box turtle. Like I just, like I was never the writer who's like, I sent out, you know, six poems to 40 magazines. Like I never sent anything out. I don't know. I just have never felt particularly ambitious for myself. Um, but I have been close to women who were driven by that, by the need for attention. And that drive um, plowed over everything else. And it's always been fascinating to me. But I don't, I don't know why I don't have a lot of that in me. But I did give that to Naomi. And it's very interesting to hear women talk. Women feel very strongly about Naomi. The loud voice, the voice that gets heard in the hundreds of book clubs I've done, lectures, readings, book signings, etc., around that book, the loud voice is pure disapproval because she is a terrible mother, right? And then quietly people come up to me after readings or they send me an email or a Facebook Messenger thing saying, I really understood Naomi. I loved her and I understood her and she had the right to sort of go go at it the way she went at it, you know, but that's always the, the private, again, the underground, there's always two conversations happening with and about women. There's the one that we hear and then there's the big underground conversation that just doesn't often pop to the surface. I'm popping it right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also suggested, I feel like uh, another component of this thematic which is this idea of who and what gets sacrificed in the name of ambition. I feel like that is emerging through the book too. So Naomi is not only coming into herself and being self-possessed and making choices about what it means to be a mother and also pursue a career. So I'm thinking about how her daughter Sophia has to you know, look, look elsewhere in some ways for some of the support that she needs. And she decides against, you know, the steady life with certain people, whether it's, you know, David or, or Jim. I, I feel like it's quite courageous in some ways to make Naomi this, um, you know, this, this metaphor in some ways for ambition, sacrifice, and, and some of the costs that comes with that. Well, I think this is something I have felt in resistance. I've, I've on and off felt a great deal of resistance to relationships because I think the moment I enter this, this person's gonna start trying to shape me into what will suit them better. It's what we do, right? It's just a human impulse. But my question and relationships has often been, 
your question about the sacrifice. Like, do you want me to, is, is the compromise I make to maybe like talk less in the morning or is the compromise I make to sort of curb my career because it's too threatening or, you know what I mean? Like, and so I think especially, I mean, you know, Naomi is looking at potential partners, both in, in Laura and David and in Jim, um, we're in the mid sixties, you know? And so, so there are potentially real um, sacrifices she will be asked to make just by entering into these relationships. And it's something that I think um, if your work is important to you, if it's part of who you are, um, and if that might be on the chopping block when you enter a relationship, I think it's, it's a bit terrifying. And if like Naomi, you don't have the sort of emotional, spiritual like resources to really examine it, to dig in, to sort of set up guidelines, boundaries, you know, to have these conversations with one's lovers about how things feel. It's just terrifying to her, I think. I also feel as much as you comment perhaps on our modern perceptions of what um, relationships should be like and how they sit together with other forces like ambition and um, love and so on and so forth. I think you also set men up too in a certain way to comment on them. You have um, a cast of peripheral men, but the two key men seem to be uh, David, the father of uh, Naomi's daughter, Sophia, but also the brother of Naomi's first love and, and first kind of sexual encounter in Laura. But then there's also Jim. So David seems to be a bit, bit of a flake, but Jim seems to be this perfect father figure. Yeah. And he's also got this aesthetic eye too. He's stopped being a policeman so that he could pursue photography in, in a really thoughtful way. As so a Jim seems ideal. And I, I don't want to give the book away, for people, I mean, you need to read it to, to feel these characters mean something to you. So I don't want to spoil that. But on that theme of our expectations of men in the world, did, did you have some thoughts about, you know, th those issues you were trying to surface with these characters? Yeah, I, you know, I've just, I've had a lot of gems in my life. In my father and friends, lovers, um, my husband, like men who were not in any way sort of threatened by like championing women. You know, when my sister and I were being like particularly difficult when we were young and my mother would be like, oh, these girls are just so difficult. And my dad would be like, a oh, girl's got to be tough. Girls got to be tough in this world. Like, you know, don't try and correct that out of them because... You know, my dad was a wonderful human being and such a deep feminist. I mean, he wouldn't have been able to tell you what the word feminist meant when he was alive, but he was, but he was one, you know, he, it just never, I never felt treated differently than, you know, my brother. I don't know. So, so I've just had the, the good luck of having a lot of gems in my life, you know, and I did want to 
try and show that kind of love. I had limitations. The book was a whole lot longer when it went to the world, you know, and Jim was a sort of a much larger character. But, you know, interestingly enough, when one goes to publish these things and publish with a major house, you know, at one point my editor said to me, you know, what we want is... Um, we really want the men to be like good guy, more good guy, bad guy. Like we really want David to be the bad guy and we really want Jim to be the good guy. And I came back with, I'm sorry, I don't know any bad guys and I don't know any good guys. I know men, I know humans who have the full range within them of what humanity is capable of. I don't know how to write your villain and your superhero, but it was desirable on the publishers because I don't want to say it's an insult to readers, but it's an insult to readers to say we need to be really clear that one is bad and one is good because our readers won't be able to handle any sort of nuance. <laughs> and it's like, really? <laughs> Nobody said that, of course, but that's what I was getting, which speaks to a much larger problem that we're dealing with today, that men are dealing with today, which is this very black and white idea of what a man is and what a man isn't. And it's getting us into a truckload of trouble because we're imposing these very severe archetypes on men. Child, innocent as starlight Veil, spread against the I mean, there's so many themes, I think, in Blue Angel that you know we could keep on backing, but your most recent work is Understory. It has some great blurbs on the back. Uh, Jim Shepard says, Understory is a wrenching, exhilarating portrait of a dazzlingly generous and resilient woman who lets the world instruct her and then you instruct us accordingly. Tell us a little bit about um, the title and how you got to the title of the work, Understory. I started this 12, 13 years ago. Um... And it was a very difficult time in my life. I was in a relationship um, that was really breaking my heart. And um, I was losing my father, my aforementioned father, <laughs> um, very slowly to Alzheimer's um, and working a lot. I found myself just in a lot of, um, just in a lot of emotional pain a lot of the time. Uh, one of my two jobs was I was working for an arborist and I had this troubled buckeye in my backyard. You know, the leaves were, were brown or it was chlorotic or just was having trouble. And um, I learned through my work with the arborist that it didn't have an understory. It needed an understory. So, which is to say it needed to have, you know, plants underneath it. It needed to live in a community of life that it was struggling because of its isolation in a way. It was just this buckeye and then 
grass, like many American yards, treat grass, right? So um, one of my ways, I guess, of handling the sort of pain that I, 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 I was just um, up against every day was to create an understory for this book, putting these plants in the ground, nurturing them, you know, trying to bring them to life, trying to bring the buckeye back. I mean, the beautiful part of being in that sort of pain is it forces you to, to sort of look at the, the world around you in this very um, narrow or, or small way or, or, or quickly learn the, the ways in which the smallest gestures of life in the world can save you and heal you, can save the day, you know. This period was an odyssey for me. And that's why this became an epic poem. I sort of jokingly to myself, because this was just a private work and I intended it to be only a private work for a long time. So I jokingly referred to it to myself as the odyssey that never leaves the neighborhood. It's not a heroic around the world in search of meaning. It's, it's, it's an inner odyssey, right? This book is an inner odyssey, and it is using only what I've got in front of me, which many days is not much. It's just not much to work with, but it's enough. I read the work and found it to be quietly melancholic and honest about life in the world. And it also gave me a sense of the small joys and the hard observed delights amidst the maudlin moments too. Um, so something large and profound and slow over time. You've built in a season too. There's a rhythm to this as well. You and I just, before we were recording, we're talking about what might be read from this work. Because of what you said, I feel like this is the right time to read it because you were talking about this odyssey and also what we have is enough. So in stanza 60 and stanza 61, it says, nourishment defies gravity, climbs by way of transpirational pull, one molecule after another evaporating from a leaf vanishing and vanishing so dependably the next one in line appears to be pulled into place by the vanishing what mechanism does not have loss built in if i lie here alone until darkness comes what animal will your absence call in to love entire is to lose entire first i think i was no one anyway then i think but i'm all i have so i love that it's always interesting to hear your work in somebody else's voice. It's nice. Is there a piece that feels right to you in this moment, just to share with us? I'm going to read 36. Finally rain, the dogwood, serviceberry, coralberry, viburnum, sumac, every cell of the understory drunk with relief, debauched with relief. 37. A shock of lightning seen accidentally as it usually is, because who can predict? When the difference in ionic voltage becomes too great, a balance must be struck. It takes only a single bolt to connect separately charged fields, lives, and then comes the deep listening, the counting, for the reverberation, the repercussion, 
a crack. 38. Like a rope thrown over a branch of heaven, I can pull myself up out of any darkness, if not any desire, only throw the rope. Or at least, this is what you believe. I search for said rope. For a time, we both think the rope is you. How did um, being an arborist, did that influence how you kind of see the world and think about the understory? Absolutely, yeah. I've always sort of had a love affair with nature. Um, that was always inside of me. Uh, it was, a, I feel like nature has always been a refuge for me. And I've always been obsessed with the sort of little micro world, you know, keeping locust shells in a jar under my bed and, and just rocks, so many rocks. Like when I moved out of my house, my mother's like, what am I, there's bins of rocks everywhere. But to me, they were all like so very special. Anyway, so, you know, fast forward in my 30s when I'm doing this sort of work, in a way, I was able to sort of synthesize um, my, I don't know, synthesize is not the word, but really marry my sort of visceral experience to the natural world with the, with the poet in me, with the writer in me, because I was... I was learning about the systems. I grew a, a small vocabulary around what was happening and what these relationships were about and what interdependence was about. And, um, and you know, the metaphors were just, I mean, I think as a poet, we're such metaphor whores, we just can't stop. We can't stop seeing them <laughs> everywhere we are, you know, so, and working with, trees and plants and, uh, you know, um, in a way was just this constant fuel for the part of me that is looking for metaphors. And we love metaphors because they help us understand ourselves and our lives. So it was really rich territory for that, you know. And then there was, I mean, I, I talked to young writers about this a lot. Before I was working as an arborist, I was teaching at College of St. Mary. And then when I was working as an arborist, which was sort of like backbreaking work, there was a lot of like mulch hauling and <laughs> hose hauling. And I wrote so much more. I probably wrote, you know, big chunks of my novel when I was doing that work because it was just mostly physical labor. It remains true for me that when my work is sort of about using my body in the world, it frees the mind, you know, it brings air into the body and light and life. And it's so much easier to write from that place. You know, it's like part of me would advise any young writer, like just go into a trade, like, please don't go down the MFA route to become an English teacher, because you'll never write again, which is dramatic. But there's but there's a kind of mental exhaustion in that work that doesn't lend itself to writing. So, I mean, it was a really important lesson I learned tied to sort of my craft and what works best in terms of creating a life for a writer. And to me, it remains very true that I have to spend a lot of time sort of in nature and silence. I have to get enough movement and light and air for it to flow freely, you know. Just enough to be wild. 
so many writing guests on the show, if there's one consistency is that they all seem to have different approaches to how they go about their craft of writing. You were just mentioning one aspect of you pulling the creativity out and into some form that can be expressed is it's physical. It's being um, embodied in the world. It, it makes me think of people like Dickens, for example, um, these, these, you know, hard walking writers. How would you describe your writing style and craft how, and, and how you kind of pull the creativity out of the muses and, and into a form that you work with? It's an interesting question, and the older I get, I also think it's a dangerous one and needs to be approached carefully because I think whatever we say about this can feel prescriptive. You know, if there's a young writer tuning in, what I don't want is for a young writer to be like, oh, I have to do it that way, you know, or I'm doing it wrong, or this successful writer does this, and if I don't do it like that, I can't be successful, you know. To develop a craft that works requires self-knowledge, you know, not knowledge of me. It's sort of a hard-won place to get to of what works for you. And it's mutable, right? Let's just take this pandemic chunk of time, right? For, I don't know, the first several months, I just couldn't write a word. And a lot of writers that I know were just like, I have all this time. Now's the moment. Why can't I write? You know, why can't I do this? Lots of reasons for that, right? This sort of stress, right? That's sort of just in the soup of being in these days. Lots of different reasons. Uncertainty and chaos and despair and all of these things that can get in the way, you know. And at some point a few weeks ago, I just started working again and working really, really hard. And now I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But like I'm using, I started using a new method that I found on Pinterest, you know, the bulletin board of like desserts and like fall fashion or whatever. I mean, it's just like this nonsense place. And you know, you get to writers get to, I, I'll speak for myself, I do get to a point of desperation because writing is an act of self care for me. And when I'm not doing it, things get really crunchy. I feel like everything in my life becomes very loosey-goosey, as my dad would say, and I don't have a center. Um, so it becomes a dangerous place for me when I'm not writing. So I think that I put into the search bar of Pinterest, I don't know, <laughs> this is probably insomnia guiding me or something, but I was like, you know, um, writing discipline methods or something like that, right? And came up with this, um, something called the Pomodoro method, which I, probably everybody knows about but me, where you write for 25 minutes, set a timer. The guy who developed it had a tomato-shaped kitchen timer, hence Pomodoro. Write for 25 minutes and then take a break for five minutes. And you just do that, maybe once a day or twice or 20 or whatever. Um, and I was like, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm gonna get a timer and I'm gonna do this, you know? And, and it worked because I'm at this point with the current novel where it's so big and such an octopus and I just, that I couldn't get to work on it, but I can do anything for 25 minutes. Like no matter how big and ugly the thing is and how unruly and unclear, I can, I can work on a scene for 25 minutes. I can do that, you know, and it really got me rolling again. But that's just like, that's like what's happening now. That's what it took for me now is this weird little sort of like trick, right? And I've had other tricks in the past and 
Janice Agee, who's, I think, one of our country's best writers, and she was my first college writing teacher, and she's a dear friend and also my neighbor. But she said many, many years ago, if you're going to be a novelist, just prepare for your life to move at a glacial pace. And all of us young writers in the world were like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Richard Dillard, another wonderful mentor of mine in graduate school, was like, my biggest hope for you is that your success comes very, very slowly. And we were all like, I'm going to get the Booker Prize by the time I'm 25. You know, we were all like, when you're young, you're like, oh, I don't want to hear about slowness. I don't want to hear about slowness. I don't want to hear about the glacial pace. Now at my age, I'm like, oh yeah, it is glacial. I am in this for the long haul. There's no way of knowing where this book is going to go or if it's even going to get bought. There's, there's so much uncertainty, but I've just accepted that this is a part of my life that I need. So I need to work on the work every day. I would say ultimately one has to be very, very patient with the seasons of oneself, right? Most writers I know when they finish something feel like, well, that was fun. I guess I'm never going to write again. You know, we're overwhelmed with the sense that we're completely empty and we oftentimes are for a time. It takes time to build up the, the life experience and uh, um, the stamina again for the long haul that writing a novel is, for example. And during that time, it will just feel like we're lazy and useless. It's very slow work and takes a great deal of thought. And it's exhausting, too. As with understory, there, there are themes around time. I feel like in some ways you're also describing, as a writer, this glacial pace of writing, but also how even short bursts of writing can be so intense and cathartic that they leave you drained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also, though, wonder about how time impacts um, this business of writing. So it, it took a long time for the work to emerge, but then you have to get it into a form that can be packaged, sold. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder what you would share with us about that aspect of the craft and the business of writing, getting a book published, and, and what that means in terms of um, the compromises, the tensions, the time, uh, the themes. There's lots of ways to talk about this. I think every writer, whether we want to admit it or not, looking at the timeline of our lives as writers, we might divide that in two, like before you get published and after you get published. And that dividing line for all of us, we've assigned it a meaning, that meaning being before I'm not really a writer, and then after, now I'm really a writer, right? Because I've had this external validation, because an agent, a house, whatever, has said yes to me. Um, Someone has paid me a lot of money. Um, Now I'm a real writer. And we think before we cross that line, that's what has to happen. We crave the validation of being official, right? You know, I tell young writers, I hope you get published as soon as possible so that you can find out how meaningless it is. Obviously, I mean, I can hear writers going, yeah, but I publish or perish, you know, I have to get published in order to, you know, get this job or whatever, you know, all that's true. But the sort of deep identity of you as a writer, if we, we hang our hats on this publication gig, and then it happens and they're like, wait, I'm still me, hold on. I think I missed something. So the question about time and how it intersects with the business, it's interesting to me, this this timeline thing that we have as writers. 
ultimately after the publication, then we have to, we have to do the hard work because we're like, oh, publication did not validate me in the, thought I, in the way that I thought it would. Nobody touched my head with a magic wand and christened me writer. I have work to do. I have to reinvent that work anew and myself anew with every, with every piece, with every book, with every, every day. You know, and luckily, I guess there's a lot of time to think about this because, I mean, like publishing with the big house is like, is a very sort of long process. Zadie Smith said, you know, somebody asked her in an interview, what's one piece of advice would you give a writer or whatever? And she said, the one piece of advice I would give writers, I'm probably butchering this and apologies to Zadie Smith for this, but she said, the one piece of advice I would give writers is when you finish the book, put it in a drawer for two years. And it's the one piece that no writer will take because we need the validation quickly. I mean, luckily I have this very strange process of starting a book, getting super overwhelmed and disorganized and quitting it and writing another book and then coming back to the first one. You know, when I was writing Last Night at the Blue Angel, I stopped and wrote a nonfiction book. Nobody wanted it. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'll go back to the novel. And so I went back, but, but two years had passed and I could see the book clearly and I was able to finish it. And, you know, and then the book that I'm working on right now, I started it overwhelmed. Uh, Bright Horse Books approached me and said, would you do a book of poetry for us? And I was like, absolutely. I was looking for a grand diversion. <laughs> and then I pulled it, you know, I pulled out understory and said, I think there's something, I can think this is a book and sort of rewrote it and reworked it and made it. But so I do this leapfrog thing. So I have time away from it. And it's just, it's a really important part of the process for me is time away. Distance, absence, um, the apartness of it is so clarifying. I mean, I, 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 could, I would have never published understory back when I first wrote it. I didn't have the courage to publish it. I didn't have the, um, the chops to see through a poem of this length, right? A book length to hold it the way it needed to be held very, very lightly, but also very deeply. You know, I didn't have the skills, but when I came back to it years later, I did, you know, so the successful writers are not necessarily the ones with the most talent, but the ones who, again, can stretch their capacities inside themselves to make room for this much time you don't know what a book is going to ask of you. Like this one asked to be in a drawer for 12 years. Right, if I had known that at the outset, I'd be like, forget that. I'm on a schedule. Thank you.
take time backwards a little bit then I was taken by something you wrote in the acknowledgements to last night at the Blue Angel and you mentioned your mother's artful life and your father's cowboy courage <laughs> tell me about your upbringing and your family life yeah my mom and dad married really late they were 39 when they met they're just very very different people you know, my mother was still is an exquisite beauty and likes to be surrounded by beauty and she creates beauty. You know, it's this, this is just sort of who she is naturally, right? She's very elegant um, and very, very specific ideas of exactly how everything should be. <laughs> and she fell in love with this big strapping, like bad grammar cowboy. That was my dad, you know? I mean, it, like love at first sight, right? She was working at the Hilton Hotel at the time. She was like, they called her Lady Hilton. It was like a title and she like did all of the big social events and everything and sort of she was the one that made everything beautiful and glamorous at the Hilton or whatever. And my dad was a rust about. He did every job there was, um, every rough job that you could have you know, he worked in mines, he worked in oil, he was a fisherman. And I feel very much like a mashup of those forces. You know, I am I'm drawn to beauty also. I find it in a very different way than my mother did, you know, and does. Um, and I feel very much a part of the earth the way my dad did. My dad was a great storyteller, you know, but he couldn't write to save his life. Like, he didn't spell our names right. He, like, he didn't have any sort of technical skills with language, but he was a wonderful storyteller, and he loved stories, and he loved to read my writing. Their, their influence on me is strong. You know, it remains strong. Um, the absence of my dad in my life looms large after it's been several years now since he's been gone. Um, but long enough that I sort of feel him in my person. You know, like people say I'm turning into my mother. <laughs> I really often feel like I'm turning into my father. <laughs> what are some of these forces in your life that have um, contributed to your ability to write and to be a writer, maybe that have detracted from your ability to be a writer and to write? And then I'm also wondering how perhaps writing is a way for you to process those forces yeah i would say that the things that um the things that get in the way and the things that make it possible tend to be the same things right like i have probably had depression since i was a young teen right that's just that's something that has been in me for as long as i can remember um and when I'm in those like depressive cycles, I think I, I can't work, you know, I feel like this is absolutely getting in the way of any way I might be useful in life at all. But in those, in those cycles, the well gets deeper and deeper every time, right? And fills. 
and I have so much more to work with when I come out of them than I did going in, you know. It's an embarrassment of riches when I come out of it. I mean, I, I don't want anybody to go through them, to go through that, because they're terrifying. I mean, there have been times when the darkness has been like more than I thought I could handle, um, as it is with anybody who has depression. But um, would I be a writer if I didn't have this? I don't know. Depression closes you off, like insulates you from life in this very specific way. You can't feel your own life. You see it, but it's like you're in this airtight, soundproof bubble. And it's right there, and you, and you want to touch it, and you want to feel it, you want to smell it, you want to uh-uh, grab it, but you can't. You can't. It won't let you, you know. It's, it's a very strange kind of relationship with the world you have when, you have, when you're in that. It used to get in my way profoundly because I was so afraid of it and it was so difficult. I'm, I'm better at my age of sort of recognizing, okay, we're in this now, you know. It always tells you it's here forever. That narrative never goes away every time I go through that. And I mean, I'm like medicated and have done the therapy and all that stuff, right? Like I, I, I do what one must do, right? But um, again, I mean, along this theme of can you make space in, in yourself for this as well? When, I, when you go into this, it's going to be like, okay, this time it's here for good. I'm gonna hold you here until you're dead. Um, can you make space in yourself to feel that, what that feels like? It's not true, it's a lie that depression tells, but when you're in it, absolutely believable. And so it's this constant sort of reshaping of one's interiority, if that makes sense. Like, oh good, now I have to make more space for this. It's like, <laughs> like, like how large does my inner world have to get in order to contain myself? What are you reading now? What should we be reading, do you think? Oh, it seems like we're all reading Ross Gay's Book of Delights, which I think is really interesting because we're all sort of reaching toward you know, what we're talking about. Um, it's such a beautiful collection of, well, by someone who is very committed to loving the world and holding it in a big way resisting the impulse to narrow ourselves around any one idea or one, one problem or one just consistently like pulling ourselves open every day and saying what's here in, the, in its totality. And that's been lovely. Uh, and it's also sort of a great book for writers because they're just sort of small little essays, you know, and it reminds you, anything that reminds you, and this is part of my reasoning for sort of being willing to bring Understory out, it's all right in front of us. Like what we need, what we're searching for, it's in front of you. 
if we can open enough. And Gay's book is just one opening after another. And it's really beautiful. I also re have revisited um, Anne Truitt's um, has these little journals. She was an artist, a contemporary sculpture sculptor. She's not alive, alive anymore, but um, she just has these journals that are sort of about her daily life. And again, I mean, they echo each other in a similar way. And I and I always I just love them. Like nothing happens in them. She has some breakfast. The neighbor stops by. She thinks about a sculpture. <laughs> She wonders this. She thinks about buying like a new hydrangea. I don't know. I mean, like, but it's riveting in a way and it's sort of simplicity and it's beauty. And especially in trying times, I like to be in the consciousness of somebody who is in the practice and the spiritual practice of, of staying open to what is. So yeah, I'm, I'm reading those two things. And then I'm doing, I'm, I'm reading a lot of very strange things for research for the current novel. Um, Buckminster Fuller, and I'm revisiting um, the Foxfire books. It's these books that came out of Appalachia, and um, they're really wonderful collections, commentary on a sort of simple back-to-the-land way of life. Is there anything you can share with us about the current book um, without giving the game away? It occurred to me at the beginning of our conversation when I was talking about sort of the ways in which women distort ourselves in order to sort of fit and how we pass that down to our daughters so that they can survive and they can fit in. This book asks the question of what would happen if we raised females without shame? What if this family unit, again, it's a sort of alternative family unit in this book, makes a decision together as adults to raise girls without shame about their bodies, about their sexuality, about their desires, about the things that rise up in their shadows? What if instead of trying to push all of that down or distort it or contort it to make it acceptable, they were just allowed to be? What would happen? So that's, I guess, uh, the sort of compelling question, initial question for me around this book. It's again about this sort of alternative family unit set on an intentional community, a commune, outside of Omaha, actually, which is a fun little juxtaposition to play with, <laughs> and three sisters who are raised by this community, and sort of what happens. Uh, I remain in love with it, so hopefully there's something good there. I don't know. Hard to say. Thank you for the teaser. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're welcome. My guest today has been author and poet Rebecca Rota. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure, Stuart. We should have more of these talks. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. 
and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community and more.